We've been joking this morning that it might seem a little bit like the Audrey show today <laughs> with lots of running around. So thanks for bearing with us with technical difficulties and chairlift difficulties. And of course, God is good, and we're here to celebrate that together. Uh, in seminary, we studied family systems theory in a pastoral care class. Family systems theory invites you to consider the role you play in your family system and the significant patterns or values that are passed from generation to generation, like marriage or divorce, faith, addiction, success, abuse, education, work, etc., etc., etc. Family systems theory notices those patterns without judgment, as well as individuals or family units who break away from or reject those patterns. And this includes relationships that are strong or tense, people who have been cut off, in our class, we created huge family trees tracking those patterns and presented them to one another, just including whatever relevant information um, impacted us and our family system. We imagined together how our family history and our role in the system would impact the way we showed up as ministry leaders. And I was reminded of this exercise over the past week because Christmas gatherings create an interesting environment to study family systems theory. Did you, like me, notice yourself falling into old, whether they be healthy or unhealthy, patterns of behavior with your family this week? You may be an adult who lives out of the house, even married with kids of your own, but do you ever find yourself behaving like you did as a child when your family gets together? If you're the peacekeeper, do you find arguments before they happen, or just go with the flow? If you're the entertainer, like me, do you bring things to do or crack all the jokes? If you're the fixer, do you overfunction or correct or intervene? If you're the rebel or the black sheep, do you apologize too much or hide in the corner? We all play a role in our family system, an evolving role that is defined by who we are, what we believe, the decisions we've made, whatever shame we carry, and our role is impacted by the roles held by everyone else in the system. Likely the way you show up as a parent is not the same way you show up as a sibling or a grandparent or a cousin. Personally, I know that Audrey, wife of Eric, does not show up in the same way as Audrey, daughter of Dan and Kathy Rink, or Audrey, eldest sibling to Janelle and Taylor. Because that's just the way it is. We need to be certain things for certain people at certain times. We need certain things in return from certain people at certain times. This is all part of the beautiful mess of what it means to be in relationship with family. Our text this morning is about how we see Christ, how we see ourselves, and one another as part of that family, that family of God. And the invitation extended to us is generations old. The new has come, so be reconciled to God. As we prepare our hearts to hear God's word this morning, would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, pour out upon us wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to receive all that leads to life, to holiness, to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 through 21. 
Once again, that's 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. Hear these words from the book that we love. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The old has gone, the new is here, and all of this is from God, who has reconciled us through Christ and given us that ministry of reconciliation. For some of you, the metaphor of family or God's family might be painful, particularly if you have been rejected by your family or chosen to step away from your family for whatever reason. So when we say family of God, we mean the community of persons who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, not because they're so great, but because God is. Not because they live perfect lives, but because God is perfect, abundant love. We are the family, we are the community, we are the body, all set apart for this ministry of reconciliation so that we might become the righteousness of God, as this passage reveals. Now, all of that sounds lovely, but let's pause and remember exactly who is writing this. This is Paul. Paul. Paul was a candidate for the ministry of reconciliation. Paul, formerly Saul, was feared by Christians all over Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. In Acts 8, Saul approved of Stephen's, not Stephen, Stephen's execution. Stephen was one of the first elected elders of the church. And after his execution, Saul goes from house to house, dragging mourning men and women out of their homes and sending them to prison. In Acts 9, Saul gets permission from the high priest to bring worshipers at the temple in Damascus in chains to Jerusalem. Saul believed Jesus was a blasphemer and a liar, and yet this is the one who brings the ministry of reconciliation. This is the man who planted the Christian church in Corinth, when we were discussing leadership models in ministry, one of my colleagues who's currently in Grand Rapids said, it's good to pick leaders who are already living the way you believe God is calling you to live. I was and am in agreement with her, but there are some significant characters in scripture whose lives were not at all focused on God when they were called into leadership. And others, like Saul, thought they were honoring God with their lives, but really were not. 
As a devout Jew who loved scripture, Saul believed he was weeding out heretics for God's glory. The Lord says this of Saul when he became Paul in Acts 9. God said, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. But I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Reconciliation, as demanded by Jesus, came at great personal cost to Paul. Jesus temporarily blinded him on the way to Damascus, and Paul spent his life traveling, afflicted with some sort of ailment we don't know much about. Paul had to constantly defend his authority in the church. He received multiple beatings. He went to jail. He was shipwrecked three times. He was stoned and left for dead. On top of that, Paul was constantly fleeing from Gentile Christians who were afraid of the Saul who sent their family members to prison. Reconciliation, new creation, what complicated concepts for Paul. The community or family of God is called to be new and to reconcile, but Paul learned that the hard way. Our shepherd Jesus took the sheep Paul and made him lie down in green pastures. He made him sit beside quiet waters. He led him, dragged him down paths of righteousness. Paul says this about his own experience. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. But God said to me, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulty. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you imagine the courage it took for Paul to believe that Christ's strength could be found in his weakness? That Jesus could forgive what he had done? And that God would choose him to lead God's people? Please do not read 2 Corinthians and make the mistake of believing that Paul had his act together. Paul took time. In Acts 9, days and years, according to his own testimony, it took him time to recover from his conversion experience before beginning his ministry of reconciliation. And even then, he wrestled deeply, heavily, painfully with sin and doubt throughout his life. I wonder if there were days Paul kept the, his own words from 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 close to his heart, murmuring them under his breath as people glared at him while he walked down the street or questioned his authority in the synagogue when he sat in his prison cell, or awaited the next beating. I can see Paul taking a deep 
breath and praying to himself. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. The new has come, the new has come, the new has come. And because Paul continued in that ministry of newness, of reconciliation, we know from the book of Acts that the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace, and they were strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, the church increased in number. The new has come. The new has come. We just celebrated the coming of the new, God's ultimate gift of reconciliation, Jesus, our Emmanuel. In fact, the Greek word for new in this passage is used a handful of times in the New Testament to specifically reference the new that Jesus preached and taught in his early ministry. The people in Mark 1 heard Jesus teaching and said to one another, what is this? A kine teaching, a new teaching, and they were amazed. But perhaps the most familiar usage of this word is in the Lord's Supper from Luke 22, when Jesus says this in reference to the cup. This cup is the kine covenant, the new covenant in my blood. And Paul adds, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of Jesus. A new teaching, a new covenant, the new has come. But what's interesting to me about this word for new is what it does not mean. What it does not mean. New does not mean that everything old is bad or worthless. And that was important for the Jews of Paul's day to hear. But the word for new also does not mean that you need the old to be part of the new. And that was important for the Gentiles of Paul's day to hear. This word for new means this. Not found exactly like this before. As new creations in Christ, we are not exactly as we were before. And how true was that for Paul? As a Jew, he treasured the old stories and old traditions of God's people. And as a convert, literally blindsided by Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul could honestly say he was not the same as he was before. He wrote this about the tension between the old and the new. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, Paul thought he was a pretty big deal. But, Paul said this, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Savior, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Paul was a new creation. And if then we are new creations, 2 Corinthians tells us we are reconciled to Christ, that our word happens a lot, we are reconciled to Christ, but also we have the ministry of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors in the world. Pastor Stephen would love how greeky-geeky I am this morning, but it's worth pointing out that the Greek word in verse 18, which translated as who reconciled, Christ who reconciled, in our Bibles is one word with a double meaning. It means that God has done something for us, God has accomplished something for us, and we have become what God has done for us. God accomplished something, and we have become that thing in such a way that we now do it for others. God has reconciled us to him, and now we are that reconciliation. We create that reconciliation. We often think about reconciliation as something that takes place outside of ourselves. We think of it as something that happens out here, particularly between two people. I'm sure you've heard many sermons about restorations and human relationship. Perhaps you've gone to Bible studies where that's been discussed. If you're a parent, you've probably tried to teach that in some capacity to your children. Maybe you were taught this growing up. We need forgiveness. We need to seek peace. We need to seek understanding, seek patience, seek restoration, reconciliation. But this is where potentially dangerous phrases like forgive and forget or the past is in the past get tossed around. Sometimes we go to such lengths to create reconciliation in our relationships that we miss it for ourselves. We ignore our own pain, our own security, our own fear, maybe our own trauma. Reconciliation is for human relationships. It exists between two people. But notice in our text this morning, there are two important recipients of reconciliation that sometimes go unnoticed. The world, the whole world, and ourselves. The world and ourselves. As we celebrate the coming of a new year, remember that we are called to experience reconciliation within ourselves. Jesus called Paul to work hard at this, especially because it's difficult to practice reconciliation with others if we do not believe we deserve that same reconciliation, or rather that God has given it to us. Reconciliation means offering second chances. It means extending grace, reserving judgment, creating peace, being empathetic. How are you doing that for yourself today? Where do you need to extend grace to yourself? What holds you back from giving yourself a break? Why do you judge yourself so critically and quickly? Paul struggles with this in Romans 7. He says, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work within me, making me a prisoner. What a wretched man I am. Can anyone resonate with those words this morning? What a wretched man I am. In a TED Talk on vulnerability, I love vulnerability. In a TED Talk on vulnerability in January of 2011, Brene Brown said, we are the most in-debt, addicted, 
and medicated adult cohort in US history. And she suggests that this may be true or can be linked to our inability to engage vulnerability, shame or fear, disappointment and joy in a deep, authentic way. Brene Brown says we numb those pieces of ourselves with money, with food, drugs, alcohol, sex, over-medication, and other vices because confronting the depth of our vulnerability, shame, whatever else we carry, is just too much. Confronting that need for reconciliation can be too much. As Christians, we believe with Paul, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if that is the case, why do we work so hard to convince ourselves that if God truly sees our vulnerability, our fear, our shame, our disappointment, or whatever else, or if we allow someone else to see that, that we will be separated from the love of God? that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why? Why do we think that way? Perhaps you, like me, are setting goals for yourself in the new year. Personally, I'd like to eat more vegetables, so pray for me. I'd like to spend some more time outside. I'd like to get a little bit more organized. Maybe you have similar goals. But my challenge for you as an individual and for us as a community of believers is this. What are your reconciliation resolutions this year? How are we pursuing reconciliation in the community of Holland and Zealand? How are we pursuing reconciliation in our families? How are you pursuing reconciliation within yourself? Remember, you are Christ's ambassador, so you must be reconciled to God. You must be reconciled to yourself. You must be reconciled to the other that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul understood that the ministry of reconciliation could not and should not be reserved for leaders in the faith alone, for pastors, elders, deacons, teachers. What we believe must be translated to the way we all show up in the family of God and in the world, just as God's love was so real and true that it entered the world as a baby boy. So friends, as you consider this, this ministry of reconciliation, may God bless you with courage to engage it. May God bless you with authenticity to share it. May God bless you in hope as you pursue it. Would you pray with me? Almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of your word. We pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all. Through Christ our Lord, amen.